Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us again. Father, thank you for your word to us, for these words of David, which are at the same time your own words to us, that they're pure and they're clean, that they're true and trustworthy. God, as you speak to us now through your word, would you open our ears? Would you help us to receive these words by faith? That you would help us to be transformed by your word and not conform to the world around us, to even what our own hearts are telling us. So God, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. We ask that in your name. Amen. All right, here, here's a quick, quick summary of Psalm 6, or at least the message that's behind it. It's this. Human suffering, human tragedy, is a deep, complex mystery only God can be fully entrusted with. Human suffering is a deep, complex mystery only God himself can be fully entrusted with. Suffering, any kind of suffering that you've experienced, we're not talking here about like not getting a parking spot at the mall or you know, some unfortunate thing that happens to you, but deep tragedy, deep sadness that pangs you. It has, it has a complex connection with our physical and emotional and social and spiritual peace and well-being. Suffering can be internal or it can be external or it can be both. It could be brought on by disease, by, by microbes, or it can be brought on by people. It can be brought on by our own doing or the evil intentions or others or what just feels to us to be bad luck. It can exhaust us. It can sap us of, of life. Or it could put us on, on a knife's edge at all times. We're on hyper alert. It can affect us totally, all day, all night. Or it can just lay dormant, resting quietly, only to come roaring back in a moment's notice out of nowhere. We hate suffering. It's awful. And so what, what we do as people, what we do as societies, we try to control it. We try to manage it. We try to understand it. There are whole industries, whole government agencies which exist to try to treat and to end human suffering and misery, the evil that we find around us. But often, suffering goes too deep. There's no medicine, there's no counseling, there's no self-help, there's no law, there's no diet that can go deep enough. We can't figure out human suffering. We can't drive it away. Because human suffering is a deep, complex mystery only God can be fully entrusted with. In Psalm 6, these words that you have in front of you begin to give reality, uh, give voice to this reality. And, and Psalm 6 helps to keep us out of two ditches that we might be tempted to fall into. On the one hand, is crippling despair. The sorrow, the sadness, the evil, the suffering that we experience or those around us that we love experience just causes us to despair. There's no hope, it's only darkness. It also prevents us from falling into another ditch 
which is just an unthinking Pollyanna optimism. Ah, just look on the bright side of things. Things could be always worse. Psalm 6 doesn't attempt to give us a simple band-aid solution to the problem of suffering and the suffering in the world, but, but God gives us this song so that we can learn to begin to entrust our suffering to him. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to dive into Psalm 6. We're going to divide it into three parts. And this is part one, about verses one through five. We'll call it the mystery of suffering. The mystery of suffering. The reality and the severity of evil and suffering has always been a challenge to the Christian faith. It's always been a challenge. Ancient Greeks used to puzzle about it, just as do modern philosophers and, and even children. The problem of pain, the challenge, uh, the personal uh, pain that each of us experience at different times, the dark night of the soul, which is, which is sure to fall on each of us, uh, causes many to abandon the faith. They just, they just don't see how suffering and pain can be squared with, with faith in God. One such person was the philosopher David Hume, and he captured this impulse of, of abandoning the faith um, in the face of pain uh, memorably, and he did it in this way. This is a quote from him. He said, is, is God willing to prevent evil, but not, uh, is he willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he's not all-powerful. Is God able, but he's not willing to prevent it? Then he is not good. Is God both willing and able? Then why on earth does evil exist? Why is suffering still present? And Christians, historically, they've answered challenges like this uh, with something like saying, no, God is both all-powerful, he is all-good, but evil and suffering continue in our world because he has holy and perfect and mysterious reasons for allowing and even ordaining uh, or even bringing about evil in the lives of those he loves. That evil and suffering in the hands of God are somehow purposeful. On every page of the Bible, we find that God himself is just not an observer of human reality. He is the sovereign king. God is God over everyone and everything. He exercises his perfect power and wisdom over everything in creation, even over suffering. Uh, Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135 verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. God works all things, all things, according to the counsel of his will. Or as the, the famous pastor Charles Spurgeon said, every dust mote that flies in the air or every little globule of spray in every harbor in the wake of every boat in the world is guided on its path through the air by God himself. And that means... That even pain, even evil, even suffering are used and directed by God. But in a way that only God fully understands. And in verses 1 through 5 of Psalm 6, you see that David is, is, is wrestling with that reality. He knows that even this pain, this personal pain, which we don't really know what the, the scenario that David was facing in this moment was. He knows that even this in some way is from the hand of God himself. Uh, though the psalm complains specifically about enemies and weaknesses in his bones and his eyes, David understands these to be proximate causes of his suffering. He knows that at its bottom, God is somehow at work. And this is a deep mystery. It's not something that we should just take lightly. That God can be without sin, yet include sin in his plans is a profound mystery, that God can ordain the deeds of wicked people and yet punish the wicked for their deeds, that God can love his people dearly yet allow them to suffer. This is a mystery. Why does God allow suffering? If he's all good and he's all powerful, 
Why does it continue? Well, David knows that one of the reasons, biblically, one of the reasons that he knows from the history of Israel is that God uses suffering and difficulty as a form of discipline, a form of chastisement, like a shepherd uh, directly but firmly uh, using his staff to guide his wayward sheep when they're in danger. God uses painful circumstances to guide us in the paths of life. This is one of the reasons. When the storms of trouble come pouring down, they have this effect. It causes us to find our shelter in God. When everything that we tend to hide ourselves and protect and insulate our lives with, with money and relationships, goes away, we turn to God alone for refuge. I have a friend who's at the start of a period of what looks like an intense time of sickness and suffering. And he asked for prayer from, from a bunch of us. And he asked, asked by writing this. He said, pray for healing. Please pray for strength, but also pray for this experience to cause me to rely less on myself and more on my Savior, Jesus, so that his power would be made perfect in my weakness. Please pray for God to use this time to change my heart so I will trust in him more and rest in his unfailing love no matter the circumstances. It takes a lot of faith to ask for those kinds of prayers. My friend recognizes that even his sickness, this time of intense suffering he's going into, that God is at work in it. David knows that his suffering isn't random. It's not out of nowhere. In some way, this is a form of discipline. It's from God's hand and for his good. But again, this is a deep mystery. Look at verse one. David's concern here is that instead of his suffering driving him to God, it might actually drive him away from God. Verse one, he says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. If that happens... Instead of suffering being loving fatherly discipline, his suffering will become wrath and destruction. Think of it like this. As a parent, my job is to correct and to discipline my kiddos. They know this. <laughs> they don't like this all the time. When they do wrong, they need correction. They need discipline from a loving parent. And while it's not fun for them, it's for their good. And in the end, so far, we've remained close. They know that I love them and that I care for them. I don't discipline them out of anger or wrath. I'm not trying to tr crush their tiny souls. I'm trying to help them. If my discipline became harsh and violent, if I was trying to crush them beyond what they could take, they would reject me. They would want nothing to do with me. They would not, uh, this would not be correction. This would just be raw punishment. And so sufferers, like my friend, they go to God in their suffering. They say, God, correct me. Yes, I know that even this is from you in some way. I know, I know that you love me, and yet don't let this destroy me. Use this pain to cause me to rest in your unfailing love. Sufferers like David in Psalm 6 says, God, I know that even this is discipline from you, but don't let it be wrath so that I flee from you. Correct me as a loving father. Let it somehow be for my good. Look at verse 3. David says, but you, O Lord, how long? How long? Um, apparently this is John Calvin's favorite exclamation. He said it as just a theme all of the time, all the difficulties that he encountered. Oh, Lord, how long? Get in the habit of saying this. Write it down somewhere. Internalize it. By saying this, whenever you encounter suffering and evil, you approach God in faith. You turn your face to God. Oh, Lord. But at the same time, you're approaching him honestly and even with a tone of irritation or impatience oh lord how long father when will you put an end to this when will you bring relief will you ever bring help to me will you put an end to this 
See, human suffering, we might have some theological answers for it. Yes, God uses it as discipline and correction to purify us, but this is a deep, complex mystery that only God himself can be fully entrusted to. And Psalm 6, as we learn it, as its melody becomes ours, it gives us words to pray. I want you to notice this too, that God's ancient people, when David wrote this some several thousand years before the coming of Christ, he had a shadowy uh, but growing understanding of what came after life, uh, the life after death. You see in verse 5 that David's fear is that this, uh, what looks like a sickness or some sort of uh, disease that will eventually lead to death, um, that if it does cause him to die, that he will enter into a place called Sheol. That's the place of the dead. It's the Hebrew equivalent to the Greek word Hades, which we use when we recite the Apostles' Creed. Sheol was a shadowy, murky, you know, weakened existence that all the dead entered into. And God has revealed far more about the life after death uh, in Christ's resurrection than David had. After Christ's resurrection from the dead, God's people had a certain hope that they would enjoy life. Not Sheol, not Hades, not a murky, shadowy existence, but a powerful resurrection life. There would be joy after death. The suffering and death and resurrection of Christ indeed changes our view of suffering and death. It proves to us that God is both all good and all powerful. And so in my office on my wall, I have have a quote that I look at often. It's an excerpt from a book that's written for pastors, and it's given me a lot of hope, a lot of comfort. And this is what the author writes. In order for the human heart to maintain love for a sovereign God, a God who directs all pain, all suffering in the world, faith must affirm what it cannot prove. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8. We must believe by faith that God has a good purpose for the awful things that occur to us. Just as a straight line can be drawn with a crooked stick, biblical faith requires the confidence that wicked and tragic circumstances can be turned to loving purposes by God for his people. Faith in the ultimate goodness of God does not come from trying to guess what his purposes may be. So where does it come from? The answer from believers through the ages is the cross. We trust our sovereign God because he has shown us his heart at the cross. There, where any one of us would have stood and cried out, this is wrong, This is unfair. God, you must put a stop to this. Our Savior made heaven's greatest good come out of earth's worst tragedy. At the cross, we learn that God is all good and all powerful and can be trusted even when everything seems wrong to human sight. The mystery of suffering is deep. It's profound. It's hard to look into. But at the cross, we're given even more substance than David had with which we can trust God with. So that's part one, the mystery of suffering. This is part two, the depth of suffering. The depth of suffering. Look at verses six through seven. Suffering is hard to look square in the face, to watch someone experience incredible pain and devastation and tragedy is deeply uncomfortable and deeply troubling. In fact, it's so difficult that many people just try to either ignore suffering or to minimize it. We don't want to meditate on the deep depths that humans can suffer. We want to just keep things light and happy and fun. Uh, Maybe even me preaching. I've preached through, I think, like three or four lament psalms so far. Maybe you're like, lighten up, Mike. (laughs) Just just turn that frown upside down. Let's, Let's get a little bit more life here. 
And Christians often want to avoid, avoid considering and talking about suffering because there's so many other really cheerful, wonderful themes in the Bible to talk about. We can talk about healing and overcoming and victory in Christ. But we have to reckon with this reality that the Psalms, the songs that God gives to his people are so filled with reflections on suffering and tragedy and pain. I once heard a sermon on the Lament Psalm, Psalms like Psalm 6, where the pastor contrasted and compared the songs that God has given to his people, psalm, songs like Psalm 6, against the songs that God's people have recently been giving to each other. <laughs> and so he was driving in, through some city in, in the American Midwest, and he found a Christian radio station. Uh, I'm going to put on a, a radio voice. So, uh, but he, but the, the, the DJ said something like this, CQAL, Christian radio, all positive, all the time. We just sing happy songs around here. We, we are, we're a cheerful bunch. That's what it means to be Christian. Look at what David sings about in verse 6. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. I am drowning in my griefs, God. This psalm isn't in the Christian radio top 20 for sure. David, it's not positive enough. You're going to have to rewrite. Yes, Christians believe that God is good all of the time, that Jesus is the friend of sinners and sufferers, that resurrection life is real, that on the cross, Christ's death put death to death. And this gives immense hope to those who suffer. And yet, we must not let these truths cause us to make shallow the depth of suffering that you can experience, that those around us can experience. I don't know if you have seen up close the devastation and destruction that divorce or abuse or broken relationships can cause across generations? Have, have you looked at the black, suffocating sadness of infertility or the loss of a child? The searing, choking pain of loneliness, the longing for marriage, of love, of close friendships? The, the almost unbearable weight of, of poverty and hunger and cold? Christians must not ignore or, or try to paint over or answer lightly the challenge of the depth of suffering. We must not promote or hold to an unbiblical faith that believes God exists just to shield us and prevent us from ever having tragedy come to us. Or that our faith is somehow a get-out-of-jail-free card so we can just easily and quickly uh, skip over deep sorrow. That's not the case. We must not counsel those around us who are suffering that they just need to put on a happy face. They just need to believe a little bit more, think more positively, see things in a different light. We must not give quick pat answers to the mystery of suffering where we say to somebody suffering, ah, you must have sinned, repent and it'll end. God's teaching you something, learn your lesson and it'll get easier. Sometimes the only appropriate thing, the only appropriate response in the face of suffering or the suffering others is to say, oh Lord, how long? Oh Lord, how long will this continue forever? Will you not put an end to this? God, our eyes are on you, but how long? This suffering is deep. So we've looked at the mystery of suffering. We've looked at the depth of suffering. And finally, this is part three. We're looking at hope in suffering. Hope in suffering. If you look at verses 8 through 10, there's somewhat of a, of a, of a tonal shift here. This is, this is the move that the lament psalms typically made, this move from complaint to confidence, from fear to faith, from worry to worship. Again, very consistent in most of the, uh, most of the laments. One commentator says that in his prayers, in his weeping, his turning to God for help, David suddenly receives an answering touch from God. 
In verses 6 through 7, he's, he's completely, seems wiped out. He's broken down. But now in these last verses, he's strengthened. He's helped. David answers the taunting doubts of his internal and his external enemies. He tells them, depart. Get out of here. Look at verse 8. David has this growing confidence that God is with him. God is for him. He's on his side. That God has heard his weeping. That God himself has accepted his prayers. In verse 10, he looks ahead and he believes in faith that all of his enemies shall, that's a future tense, they will one day be turned away from him and sent packing. This too, this suffering shall soon pass. But note, David's suffering isn't over yet. God hasn't brought relief to his troubles yet. But God has assured David through the eyes of faith that his trouble may be longer than he wants, but it'll be shorter than he fears. David is not given hope apart from suffering, but he's given hope in suffering. Right in the middle of his troubles, David's given hope. God hasn't changed David's pain, but God has changed David. Human suffering is a deep, complex mystery only God can be fully entrusted with. Yet in the middle of it, God can give us hope. What David is probably doing here is he is remembering God's past actions in his life or the life of his people. He remembers how God, in the middle of suffering and pain, delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. He remembers how, in the middle of, of various forms of suffering that David himself experienced, that time and again, God rescued him. But there's something about these different deliverances that David experienced. Uh, there's something significant about them, and, and it's this. is that They're all uh, temporary. They were all short-lived. Israel went back into slavery at various points. David encountered trouble after trouble. He would need new deliverances over and over again. In Psalm 6, David hopes for something more. He hopes for a more complete salvation. One where all of his enemies, all of his suffering, all of his pain will be done away with forever. He looks forward to a time where God would finally do completely what he has done provisionally and, and temporarily now, what David hoped and longed and expected for God to do, we, look, we, we see when we look back at the cross. David looked forward, but we get to look back at what God has done. Suffering is not our final destiny, the cross says, because Christ suffered for us. The hope of Psalm 6, what David was ultimately longing for, the final end to your suffering, was pronounced in Christ's suffering cry, it is finished. For those of you who look to faith Look to Christ in faith. His death becomes the anchor of hope in every storm. This might be hard to, to grasp, hard to understand. So I'm actually going to finish the sermon, never really do this, but with a, with a story, kind of a parable that I heard. It's actually from the same book that I mentioned earlier. Um, I think it gives voice to the pain, but also to the hope in the middle of suffering that Psalm 6 is teaching us. This is the story. There was once a minor who, though a stalwart believer, was injured at a young age. He became an invalid. Over the years, he watched through a window near his bed as life passed him by. He watched fellow workers marry, raise families, and have grandchildren. He watched the company he had served thrive without attempting to make adequate provision for his loss. He watched as his body withered, his house crumbled, and hope for better things in his life died. Then one day, when the bedridden miner was quite old, a younger man came to visit him. I hear you believe in God and claim that he loves you, said the young man. How can you believe such things after all that has happened to you? The old man hesitated, 
and then smiled. He said, yes, there are days of doubt. Sometimes Satan comes calling on me in this fallen down old house of mine. He sits right there on my bed where you are sitting now. He points out my window to the men I once worked with whose bodies are still strong. And Satan asks, does Jesus love you? Then Satan makes me look at my tattered room and he points to the fine homes of my friends and asks again, does Jesus love you? Finally, Satan points to the grandchild of a friend of mine, a man who has everything I do not. And Satan waits for the tear in my eye before he whispers in my ear, does Jesus really love you? Startled by the candor of the old man's response, the younger man asked, what do you say when Satan speaks to you that way? The old miner responded, I take Satan by the hand and I lead him to a hill far away called Calvary. There I point to the nail-pierced hands, the thorn-torn brow, and the spear-pierced side. Then I say to Satan, doesn't Jesus love me? Now may you fully entrust the deep and complex mystery of evil and suffering into the hands of your holy, wise, and loving Heavenly Father. May your suffering, whatever it is, be received by faith, driving you to your Father and not away from him. May you learn to cry out often, O Lord, how long? May you learn to look into the depths of suffering and sing the songs God has given you. And may you take all of your doubts, all the taunts of Satan himself by the hand to the cross of Christ and say, doesn't Jesus love me? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the great love that you've shown us in Christ. We thank you for his suffering and death, which gives new light to our suffering and our death. And we can see resurrection, hope, and life even in the middle of our suffering. Father, please build our faith. This, this is a mystery, and it's hard to believe. And so we ask for your spirit now to help us to trust you more. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen.